the Psalm 17 and commencing at verse 1. And the title says, A Prayer of David. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of fiend lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvellous loving kindness. O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about, they're enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Like as a lion that is greedy of his prey. And as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his precious word this evening. The hymn writer Augustus Montague Toplady is believed to have taken shelter in the cleft of a rock during a storm. And this shelter and refuge from the storm provided the thought behind his well-known hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven, thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And in this hymn, there is a very strong reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is our rock. And we, as his people, have our refuge in him. He is our refuge. This is something that David the psalmist continually experienced through his life. In the book of Psalms, there is an overwhelming evidence to the fact that David constantly sought shelter in the Lord. Psalm 17 contains a prayer by David that 
was probably penned when he was in great distress and in danger of malice by his enemies. Uh, We do not know the exact circumstances. Some believe it concerned Absalom, his son. Uh, But the psalm does not say it is a prayer of David. But we often cry to the Lord during times of great trouble and on occasions when we need divine help. But let us pray without ceasing. Let us seek the Lord continually, not merely during trials. And of course, David did not just seek the Lord in trials. He prayed continually. And he prayed this prayer in a time of hardship. This psalm, as John Calvin said, contains a mournful complaint against the cruel pride of David's enemies. He protests that he did not deserve to be persecuted with such inhumanity inasmuch as he had given them no cause for exercising their cruelty against him. At the same time, he beseeches God as his protector to put forth his power for his deliverance. Matthew Henry said this psalm is a prayer. As there is a time to weep and a time to rejoice, so there is a time for praise and a time for prayer. David was now persecuted and uh, hung probably by Saul. He believes it was Saul the penned, or Saul was the circumstances behind this psalm. And Saul hunted him like a partridge on the mountains. He said there were fears. And all these things urged him to come to the throne of grace, the throne of mercy and prayer. And so when we come to this psalm, this psalm contains the main elements of prayer. And this psalm is a pattern for prayer for us. It's a psalm that encourages our hearts because it focuses us upon the refuge that we need to rest upon for our souls. I want you to see then this evening... Prayerfully resting in our sufficient refuge. Prayerfully resting in our sufficient refuge. And we see three things in this psalm. We see a lot of things in this psalm, of course. uh, But we're summarizing it down to just a few things. And of course, when we do these studies in the psalms, we're not dealing with every single thing. And if we did that, we may very well still be on Psalm 1. Uh, But we're summarizing these psalms. And we're coming to Psalm 17. We're given a summary of some thoughts we have here. And there's much in this psalm. There are things we're not going to consider. And of course, if you want uh, some homework for the, from the prayer meeting for the first time, you can go and read and study uh, those things uh, yourselves. Uh, but we're giving a glimpse here. Maybe sometime in the future we can come back and look at more. Uh, but at this point in time, it's just a little glimpse And we see, firstly, our petitions must be centered on our glorious Lord. Our petitions must be centered on our glorious Lord. A petition, what is it? It is a request. We can think of it from a political perspective. If we have a desire that the government change a law, or we protest against a law that the government is thinking of doing, I'm not sure how it works here in Canada, but in the United Kingdom, There is a website that you can go to and you can start a petition. And if so many people, maybe several hundred, few thousand people sign that petition, uh, then uh, there's various, I suppose, goals. When you reach a certain number, it can be discussed uh, in Parliament, etc. And so it's a way of requesting the government 
to consider something, petitioning the government to uh, consider this request that so many thousand people in their nation want this particular act done or, or cancelled or whatever it might be. And so a petition is a request. And in the context of prayer, it is a humble request to God. The language of petition is dominant here within the psalm. And uh, petitions form the basis for our prayers. If we were to turn uh, to Matthew 6, uh, we'll turn to Matthew 6. We'll uh, turn to this chapter, verse 9. And the Savior says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's the pattern of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And the Savior gives us petitions. And if you were to consider the shorter catechism on the Lord's Prayer, uh, questions are asked, what is the first petition? What is the second petition? What is the third petition? And uh, the catechism will give the answer, thy kingdom come or thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven or give us this day our daily bread. And then more questions will be asked. What does this mean to us? And so the Savior gives petitions, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Another petition and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the Savior here is teaching his disciples. He's teaching his church to petition in prayer. When we come to pray, it is not just about being thankful to the Lord. Lord, I thank you for this day, for thy help and strength and thy presence. And we ought to thank the Lord. And that is an important aspect of prayer. But petitioning the Lord is also an element of prayer that we cannot set aside. And we see biblically that this is something we must do. We acknowledge that the Lord is not required to answer all our petitions and there are those who pray for things they ought not to pray for. And we also need to acknowledge that the Lord answers prayer in his own time. A time that is perfect according to his will. But I want you to note here that our prayers as we petition the Lord. Our prayers should not be self-centered. In regard to praying for our wants and desires rather than our needs. We might have a particular need. And we might have our wants and desires, but we're to pray for our needs. And we're to remember to pray for others also. Our prayers are not to be self centered, but we will be praying for needs that we have. Our prayers are to have a framework that is found in the doctrine of Scripture. The Savior gives us a pattern for prayer. Here there's a pattern for prayer. Our prayers should follow sound doctrine. And so the doctrine of the scriptures should be reflected in our prayers. We should not be praying outside of that framework. We believe as a church uh, that uh, the gift of tongues has ceased. And so, for example, we ought not then to be praying. We believe the Bible teaches that. And so we ought not to be praying, Lord, give us the gift of tongues. Because our scriptural theological framework that we believe is that is built upon the Bible does not include the gift of tongues. We believe that the practice of that today is unscriptural. 
And so to pray for that goes outside that scriptural framework. Praying for the dead, as some will do, is outside the scriptural framework. We do not pray for the dead. And of course, there are many other examples uh, where there are things, and maybe more practical things perhaps, that have no bearing in scriptural doctrine that people will pray for. The Bible is our framework when it comes to life, when it comes to the church, when it comes to prayer. And we are to have a framework then that is similar to biblical prayers. Biblical prayers are our pattern. And our prayers always ought to bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. And whatever we do, we're to bring glory to God. But notice here what David prays for in this psalm. These are his petitions. And we're moving through some of this uh, quite quickly. There's a lot here. But he prays in verse 1 and in verse 6 that the Lord would hear his cry. This is one of his petitions. Lord, hear me. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer. And again we see that verse 6. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Lord, listen to me. Lord, hear my cry. And the basis for this request comes from the way in which he was being dealt with by his enemies. David emphasizes here that he is honest, that he is upright. And it's important for us to have a good testimony before men. And he emphasizes this to the Lord. He emphasizes to the Lord that he would hear him. And this is something that is connected with the Lord's servant in the Psalms. He expresses constantly a steadfast confidence in God that he will hear his prayers. And that is based upon who his God is. And upon the attributes of God and the actions of the Lord. We also need to note here that David emphasizes that he does not pray with feigned lips. In other words, he's not praying deceitfully. That's what this word means. Oh dear believer, we're to pray with honest hearts. Honest hearts. He's coming before the Lord openly and honestly to present his case. He was sincere. He knew that deceitful prayers were fruitless. Why? Because God sees his heart. He's coming honestly and openly. And he knows, Lord, I have been righteous. Lord, I have followed thy law. There's no reason here why the Lord would not then listen to the prayers of his servant. Because he sought to walk in his ways. And dear believer, we're to petition that the Lord would hear our cries. But we're also to desire that we would have lives that are pleasing to him. That he would hear our cries and answer our cries according to his will. He prays here that the Lord would judge him and see his case. Verse 2. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Who is the perfect judge? It is the Lord. And this verse shows us that David was concerned about men passing judgment upon him and he desired the Lord's sentence. A fair sentence, a just sentence, a righteous and holy sentence, a verdict superior to any man because the Lord is omnipresent and omniscient. Matthew Henry said that God's omniscience is as much the joy of the upright as it is the terror of hypocrites. And what is that? It's the infinite knowledge. God sees everything. God knows everything. And therefore David is saying, Lord, thou art my judge. 
This world, those within it, will judge according to their bias, but the Lord was his judge. He believed if the Lord looked at his heart, he would see a righteous heart. A righteous heart. Oh, when we find trouble, let us prayerfully rest in our sufficient refuge, knowing that though this world may despise us, the friends may forsake us, though this world may cast accusations at us, the Lord knows our hearts. And we can rest sufficiently in him. He prays thirdly that the Lord would guide and hold him in his path. Verse 5. Hold up my goings and thy paths. That my footsteps slip not, he says. He desires the continuation of God's grace and work within him. He wants that restraint from falling into sin. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. What happens when our footsteps slip? I know from experience lots of pain and a lack of mobility. And many times I have slipped up in the mountain hiking with friends. I have slipped. And I've hurt an ankle, maybe something not so serious. But slipping can be dangerous. Slipping can cause the loss of life. And David here, he's not speaking about physical footsteps, but his spiritual footsteps. That he would slip not into sin. That he would stand firm upon the rock. He would stand firm for the Lord. That the Lord would restrain him from falling into sin. And we need the Lord's grace and help. We need to follow his ways. And know his help and the Spirit's help in forsaking sin. We need to examine ourselves. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. And we need to dig deep into his word. And know his word. As we desire to slip not. Our refuge is the Lord. Our help is in him. Let us not be men of sin. Let us be men of God who love him. Who rest sufficiently in his refuge. He prays as well here for the Lord's loving kindness. To be displayed in a situation. Verse 7. Show thy marvelous loving kindness. O thou that savest by thy right hand. Them which put their trust in thee. From those that rise up against them. This is how the Lord deals with his people. In loving kindness. Oh that we would experience. That loving kindness from the Lord. He's one who sent his son to die for us. He's one who loves us. Oh the loving kindness he displays. It's a great thing. It's a marvelous thing. And that's what David says. Show thy marvelous loving kindness. Do you believe it? Do we petition that? That in our lives and in our difficult circumstances. We would know That loving kindness. Marvelous loving kindness. To help us through those difficult times. He prays for protection as well. Verse 14. Verses 8 to 9. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me. David here. There's weakness and tenderness. There's hurt. There's pain. And he's looking for refuge. In the only one. Who can 
help him. He's prayerfully resting in his sufficient God. Verse 13 as well, he prays for the Lord to confront his enemies. That's a connection to protection here. The circumstances that he's facing, those difficult times, he's looking to the Lord to help. Dear believer, let us look to the Lord to help in those difficult times. Let us not rest upon our own strength, but let us learn from David here to prayerfully rest in our sufficient God. David knew the Lord's protection. When we look at this world and its hatred for the Christian faith and for Christ and for believers, we need to rest in the Lord. It is only his strength and his comfort that is sufficient for us. And so secondly, I want you to see here that our faith must focus our hearts upon truth. Our faith must focus our hearts upon truth. There's a strong connection here between how we pray and what we believe. The doctrine, the theology that we believe governs our lives. So if we believe that God is sufficient and able to help us and he is omnipotent and has the power to help us, we believe that we'll act and pray accordingly. We've seen something of this already. This psalm doesn't break up into David's petitions and into David's proofs or his confidence and his faith in the sense of breaking up nicely because it's all interconnected. But it is an important thing that as we come to pray that we reflect upon the Lord, that we remind ourselves of who God is. Our faith must focus our hearts upon truth as we pray. It encourages our hearts because we're considering the great things of God. And I want you to see here that David acknowledges that the Lord knows who he really is. Verses 3 to 4. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. He begins this psalm by setting out his righteous cause. He's been attacked by men. And... He's praying to the Lord, Lord, thou hast seen my heart. He is encouraged and he's encouraged to pray and he's encouraged in this difficult time because God knows who he really is. And that's a doctrine, as we've mentioned, the omniscience of God. He's been attacked by men. We must emphasize something here. Not every critical attack, or sorry, not every critical remark by others about us is an attack of Satan. We need to understand that. And that is vital to our sanctification. Not every critical remark by others is an attack of Satan. Sometimes it may be. Sometimes it is not. And the person is God's instrument to help us and to sanctify us by the Spirit of God. And we need discernment to know the difference. To know the difference. When we face criticism, what should be our first reaction? Act, this person's just trouble. I'll ignore them, I'll set them aside. They're trying to cause a problem here. No, that should not be our first reaction. They're seeking conflict. No. Our first reaction should be that soul searching question that is answered prayerfully Are they right? Are they right? Not, did they use the right means? That's another matter altogether. 
Sometimes people can say the right things in the wrong way. Sometimes they can say the wrong things in the right way. That's another matter altogether, but are they right? Are they right in what they're saying? Is this something that I feel that, something I've sinned by doing? Is this something that I need to get before God and know his grace to put right? And if they're right, how should we then approach this matter? It's resolved to the glory of God. And too many Christians and pastors and Christian workers view questions or critical remarks or critiquing as an attack of the devil. When in reality, it may not be. It's part of the work of sanctification. It's part of the work of reformation. David here, however, was enduring the real attack of the devil. And we need to be able, by God's grace, to tell the difference. Otherwise, we will condemn godly saints as doing the work of the devil, when in reality, they may be God's instrument to help us and to teach us and to instruct us. And of course, when we critique others, we must be careful as well that we do it in the right way. And we do it for the right reasons. And we do it for a godly purpose. But David here did endure the attack of the devil. But he knew God knew who he was. And that encouraged his heart. Secondly, we see that he acknowledges that the Lord saves those who trust in him. Verse 7. Thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee. That's a great truth. It's a simple expression of gospel truth. A simple expression of What the Lord does for his people in saving faith. He saves those that trust in him. And dear believer, when we look at the difficult and hard circumstances of life. And we think of our God. He encourages us. He lifts us up. He helps us. He saves those that trust in him. And as we come to pray, we can rejoice in that. And that can motivate us to pray. Thirdly, he he acknowledges the evil actions of those who oppress him. Verses 10 to 12. He sees sin as what it is. He sees wickedness as what it is. Fourthly, he acknowledges who these men really are in the sight of God. Verse 14. These men are wicked men. They're men of this world. They're devoted to the world. They have an abundance of worldly possessions. They're focused on the world. And they don't acknowledge God and they strive against his servant. The world is not the friend of the believer, and David knew that. And we need to remind ourselves constantly, the world is not our friend. It is the enemy of God's people. And great truths, there's much more here, but great truths, the great truths of Scripture, they focus our faith when we come to pray. They help us and they encourage us to rise above the problem and to bring our prayers to the Lord. And then thirdly and finally, Our praise must glorify our living God. Our praise must glorify our living God. As we rest in him, sufficiently resting in his refuge, we praise him. We thank him. And that praise glorifies his name. We do not have a clear defining praising of God as we do in other Psalms like Psalm 100. But the Lord is still praised by David. And there are two particular thoughts here that in connection to David will also lead to ourselves praising the Lord. He acknowledges God. 
There's a reverence and a respect for the Lord. We see this. Verse 1, Jehovah is mentioned. Lord in capital letters in our authorised version. And David is straightway focusing upon the greatness of his God. He acknowledges him as one who will hear and answer his prayers. He's acknowledging who God is. And that is glorifying God. Dear believer, acknowledging who God is, is a glorifying of God by you. And then we have his anticipation of glory. Verse 15. He shows his satisfaction in the Lord. He does not desire possessions and wealth of the wicked, but he desires the Lord. Verse 14, all these worldly things. Verse 15, as for me. This is what the world wants. This is what I want. I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. He desires the Lord. He's satisfied when he comes before the Lord. Some believe that this is a reference to the public worship of God. It's an interesting thought today because many do not have that same anticipation for the house of the Lord as David. But if there is no reference to public worship here, there's still this same thought. How can we desire the presence of the Lord and desire glory with the Lord if we do not desire that here on earth in the house of God? As we come to worship him and we praise his name, And we desire to be at worship. That is a forerunner. A taste of what we will be doing for all eternity. And can we say, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Some say, yes, there's a reference to public worship. But there's most certainly a reference to being with the Lord for all eternity. Or maybe be like the psalmist who was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us be with the Lord. Be with him on earth. Be with him in heaven. Praising him. Satisfied when we awake. Matthew Henry said that there is no satisfaction for a soul but in God and in his face and likeness. His good will towards us and his good work in us. And even that satisfaction will not be perfect till we come to heaven. May our souls be satisfied and may we rejoice in who our God is. May we glorify him, him who is our sufficient refuge. May the Lord bless his word tonight for his name's sake. Amen.